electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thank you very much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, the final day of a down month for stocks. And now big questions about what March might bring for your money. We'll debate and discuss that with the Investment Committee. Joining me for the hour today, Josh Brown, Stephanie Link, Jim Labenthal, Kerry Firestone. Everybody is here at Post 9 at the New York Stock Exchange. Let's give you a check of the markets. As we said, the final trading day of what has been a down month. And uh, we're mixed right now. Dow's down 170. There's the S&P down a couple of points. And the Nasdaq's been, uh, uh, you know, all around uh, today is uh, good for about 16 and a third. But Josh, so, you know, we, so we're in this month. Uh, I feel like we have big questions now as we enter March, whether it be March madness for stocks or, or not. I mean, how do you see things after a quite an interesting couple of months to start this year? I think the story with February, it's, it's just a repudiation of January. And January was a repudiation of December. So we're kind of in this situation where um, when the inflation data shocks to the upside, the dollar rips, stocks go down, even gold went down this month. Um, and we don't know what March's data will look like, but I would just tell you that is almost single-handedly going to be what's responsible for whatever we see in the S&P. It's just what the market happens to be laser-focused on right now. Mm -hmm. There's no way around it. Now, some areas of the market will be more affected than others, but if you, if you said, Josh, I'll give you one data point uh, for, for uh, next month only that you can rely on, the one I would probably Job ask, support. well, if I can't have price, the one I would probably ask for uh, would be CPI. And I don't think it gets more complicated than that. Yeah, I'm thinking, Steph, the jobs report, too. That's where I thought was Josh was going. Obviously, CPI matters. But after the last, I feel like the last jobs report sort of turned this market and the, and the what try, was trying to be a more positive narrative on its head. Right. It brought yeah. all of that <clears throat> conversation about, OK, now higher rates again. And for longer. Now, the Fed's good. OK, now we got to talk about a June rate hike. I feel like that number next week, not this week, is going to be huge. It's important for sure. And I think we're going to be remain in a trading range, um, as I've been talking about pretty much for the last year. Um, but we're also very data dependent. And to your point, yeah, the jobs number is important next week. But we got to get through the fourth quarter unit labor cost number this Thursday. And then after the jobs report, Josh mentioned CPI, then you get PPI and retail sales as well. So we are data dependent because the Fed is data dependent. And it's very hard hard to be a short-term trader, which I'm not, in this kind of an environment. Well, let's put it so this way. Many, there's so many mixed signals If that right now. jobs number uh, a week from Friday comes in really hot again, watch out, because it's only going to encourage those who say, you know what, what we thought was 25 and 25 and maybe another 25 could now be, could we do 50? It really doesn't. Is, doesn't is that going to cause rates to rise even further? Because the, the, the move in interest rates this month is clearly what has upset stocks. 
right, but that's because inflation was higher, right? I mean, the jobs number is yeah. the jobs number. The most important piece in the jobs number is the average hourly earnings. Yeah, I know that, but you got like 500K jobs. If you do another number not that's do strong 500K like that. 500K jobs because January was actually, there were some seasonal issues as well in the January number. It was more like a 300 number, maybe 300 plus. So 270 is the expectation for next Friday. I think the average hourly earnings number is way more important. The inflation data is way more important to me because that's what the Fed is focused yeah. on. They know that the job market is strong. And by the way, the initial claims, which is a leading indicator, are very strong. You're down the last four weeks on a moving average basis. You're down about 6% year over year. So the labor market remains tight. The Fed can go because inflation remains hot and stubborn. And I just think that that's going to be the narrative. And that's why we are in this trading range, right? So uh, Yeah. And I feel like, Jim, you know, January was your month, right? February, not so much. And now I wonder how you're thinking ab- about March, because, you know, the, the pivot camp had its way in January. Stocks had a, a great start of the year that evaporated into February, which is ending today. And now we begin a new month with the same old questions. So you brought up that it was the jobs report, the January jobs report that sort of started this downturn and then that crescendoed through last week's PCE report. All of that data between there, including the CPI and PPI, was for January. That was one month. And I have no idea and no one has any idea if January is a blip in an otherwise nicely downward trending inflation or if it's an if it's the start of a new trend and we're going back up and inflation really is sticky. For that, we do need to see the February figures, which the earliest of which is the jobs report. It's a week and a half away. So unfortunately, Scott, that leaves us in this condition where once again, like for the last year and a half, we're focused on inflation. All I can say is, and I said this in my firm's uh, uh, Monday morning meeting yesterday, is I really wish Gilda Radner were alive to bring her character, Rosanna, uh, Rosanna, Rosanna Dana. She would fit right here and she would send up everything we've been doing for the last year and a half on inflation and the Fed, because what I'm trying to say is, isn't this tiresome? At some point, we will get through this. I won't try to do a Gilda Radner impersonation. She's Every stupid. viewer under 50 wants you to stop talking about <laughs> Gilda Radner. Well, everybody exactly. under, everybody I'm glad that Josh said it because I was going to, but I've been planning no, no, to. No, everybody under 50 should go look at a Gilda Radner clip. She, she would send up what we're doing All right, RIP. Carrie, what do you got for us? We've got nothing else to do. Flip Wilson. Let's do some honeymooners. Thank you, Mr. Cohen. Before my time. Carrie, go ahead. You said you said shtick, right? Yeah. Okay, just yeah. making sure. What do you think I said? I saw our executive producer over here almost fall over. That's why. No, Kevin, I just make, Kevin I'm just knows me sure. 12 years. Yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll never let you down. Yeah. I'll, never, I'll never let you down. Carrie, please save yeah. us. So here, here's where I think we have a little balance. We got a target number this morning, and I don't know if you were watching when the print came out, but the stock dropped. I don't remember whether it was 4% or 5%, and Brian Cornell started to speak, and we're going, I'd hate to be the guy out there trying to defend what a great quarter they had in the fourth, and all of a sudden the market hates it. And then suddenly the numbers started to look better. I mean, the pre-market numbers looked better. And why is that? I'd say for a couple of reasons. Because having soft sales on the retail side, Mm -hmm. in combination with what we heard about rents today, rents being down 3.5 or 3.6% year over year, those are anti-inflationary because less demand means people aren't spending as much money. That's positive for bringing inflation down. And when rents come down, that's a big factor in CPI. So I think the market took some solace and it decided, instead of being negative about Target, it decided that they'd be positive about the market and the inflation and and interest rate piece and give it the benefit of the doubt and let the the stock run. And it's still up 2%. One of the issues, too, um, Jimmy, is 
there's a lot of distance between here and there in terms of whether we're going to have a soft landing or not. And an, an awful, I think, more distance than people might have thought because the economy, you, you can be right on both accounts. Yeah, you can argue, and I know you have consistently. Yeah, inflation's coming down. It's coming down at a reasonable clip. Yeah, you're right. Uh, economy's strong. It's stronger than people expected it was going to be at this point. Consumer's stronger than we thought. Yeah, you're right. But, you know, therein lies the problem, okay? Because the Fed is not going to stop as a result of that. Are they going to ultimately put us into a recession? Is it going to be soft? Is the market pricing in soft? You know, there are so many wild cards at play. Yeah, and, and also a problem, you know, you said there's a lot of distance. I thought you are going to be saying there's a lot of distance till the next data point that matters, which at least to me is next week's uh, labor report. Yeah, I don't, look at, I don't look at but a week as, but as, as a lot of distance. I'm just saying it, that. But it's a week and know. a half that the market is just going to twist in the wind. And that's the only way to describe it. What's going to happen is, is Bullard or Mester going to get on the air, do some speech and say, oh, let's raise rates to 7 percent? Probably. Probably. I won't do the Rosanna, Rosanna, Dana thing again, but that's where we are. We're in Rosanna, if you, Rosanna, if, Dana If you time. mention it one more time, literally, you might be in the parking lot. I'm just, I'm, I'm just <laughs> saying. I thought, about, we, I thought we, we made the rents, point. I thought I we think, made yeah. that point already. Rent, rents, rents are a really important component in the thing that the Fed said it's, sure. it's, it's looking at, or one of the things the Fed says it's looking at. The, the trouble with, so the, I saw the same stat as you, I think. Uh, apartment rents down 3.5% over the last six months, August through January. Like, yeah. I mean, I... How significant is that in the Fed's thinking? I don't know. But one of the difficulties that we face is the glacial pace at which things like, for example, uh, apartment rentals, that, that's not a fast-moving series. And you've got two components to that. You've got existing leases that are being resigned, and then you've got new leases, and they're not the same thing. Yeah, but there's 52% of people, I think, are only resigning their leases. So that number can drop pretty fast. You think, you think uh, it can? I think it can. Yeah. Okay, because for me, that's one of the most stubborn inflationary you're issues right. that we face right you're now. Right. I, think you're, I think you make a good point about rents, but the Fed focuses on services ex-housing. Ex-housing. That's their that's new... The whole pe- that's yeah. the whole Which is a problem. ...summary, and that's a yeah. very big problem. The services economy is really, really well, strong. Then why, We've been talking then, about then it forever. What enables you to be as positive as you are relative to others in terms of the market, right? You, you, yeah. you always make the point that, you know, the Fed is going to be engaged, that the services economy is super strong, but then you pivot into how somehow you are more positive on the market. I don't know. How how can you be both? No, no. I'm more positive on the economy. The market, I have been saying, is going to be in a trading range, and I I am finding opportunities. You know, I was adding to Target this morning when the stock was down in the pre-market. So there are opportunities in in the market. The economy, I think, is holding up better than expected, better than any of us thought it would. I would agree with that. Yes. And and a lot of it, and I could just list a whole bunch of things for you, but a lot of it is the consumer. It's really very important. Is that going to hold up? Is the consumer going to hold up? It's not good if it holds up, though. See, here we go. Well, that's why. Is the consumer holding up? (laughs) You just hit me. Yes, I did. All right, go ahead. (laughs) Why is the consumer holding up jobs? That's why the job report is important for sure, but inflation is also important. So then do you want to lean into the discretionary trade then? I'm overweight. Um, I've been overweight. Should people continue to lean there? Because it is the best performing sector year to date by a lot. Well, yeah. So I added to Target. I own own Wynn Resorts. Uh, which has had a very nice year. I own Starbucks. I own Nike. I'm overweight the sector by about 300 basis points because I do think the consumer is in better shape. Am I going to stay overweight the consumer? I don't know. I'm going to look at data. I'm going to listen to what companies have to say. Why I actually own most of these companies, though, that I just mentioned, because they have a special situation stories, right? We know the Starbucks and the CEO and the leadership change, right? We know Nike 
and China is reopening. I'll throw in Estee Lauder as well, which is, acts like garbage, by the way, but they also are going to benefit in a huge way if China reopens consistently. You were going to say shtick also. <laughs> I almost I did. I almost, I almost did. I, I, I knew that was Jersey funny. girl, Scott. Yeah, yeah. So, right, it got discretionary. Information technology has had a, a, a pretty good year to date uh, as well. What about the, the state of the, the tech trade, which I feel like, you know, there's a lot of hype around AI. You know, as firms seemingly daily come out with their, this is the way to play, you know, AI today. And it's Bank of America with their top picks. No, no shock here. Alphabet and Apple, Microsoft, Meta, Baidu, they put as well. Um, Carrie, is this fundamentals we're talking about or froth? Well, if you're talking about AI, just like to announce, I'm making a big push into AI. That's our next uh, initiative <laughs> because everybody's doing it. So it's become a fad. I mean, it's become to some extent. Is that what it is? Is it a fad? Oh, it is obviously, it it's is it not froth? a fad. It's not a, a, a fad or froth, but it is something for which everyone seems to need to announce that they have an, an initiative um, at the corporate level, whether it's a technology company, communi communications company. Pretty soon you're going to hear it with transportation companies like and retailers. Everybody's Everybody has say an it. AI announcement. Yeah. Right, but if that, you don't say it, you're, you're right behind the curve, but, see, but, that but it's implies, coming. What you guys are implying is that a lot of this is based there's on always speculative fraud. But, ju but Judge, there's, there's always the buzzword. Uh, there's yes, always, I know. There's eyeballs and there's total addressable there's, there's market. There's always the thing. So this, it's year it's, this year it's AI. But you can have froth and have a, a buzzword become a trading meme and become a reason for stocks to do unreasonable things and for a reason for people to speculate in low quality stocks while at the same time acknowledging that there is a real reason that people are excited. Sure. Uh, that's you know, every bubble is based on a kernel of truth and a misperception. Is that what this, uh, are we inflating a big AI it's bubble? A, it's yeah. a trillion dollar total addressable market by the end of the decade. It's, yeah, it's, it's, we're, not, we're, it's not a, a real, fake, it's a, it's a real it's not thing. a fake thing, but I there know, are, they were going be, market too. There, there are going to no. be stocks that there are going to be it's stocks that do unreasonable things because of the excitement over AI. It's nobody saying AI is not really going to be an important technology. They've been saying it for 20 years. ChatGPT was like a nuclear bomb going off, and it was a wake-up call. And even in my industry, that we are now getting pitched on a weekly basis. We we both utilize technology and we invest in startups that address the wealth management space. We did a demo last week with a company where an advisor can get off the phone with a client after an hour and have the entire conversation uh, be summarized by AI and then email instructions to our operations department about any follow-ups that have to take place. If you know anything about wealth management, it's a huge industry. That process could take a financial planner 30 minutes. It's done in five seconds. All yeah. of a sudden, the conversation ends and there are all these instructions. Open up this type of account. Transfer this much money to there. It's a very yeah. real thing that's going to touch every vertical. That's why NVIDIA is selling at 50 times earnings. Okay, it's so excitement over that. I understand. So let's, since you brought up NVIDIA, I want you to listen to what Kathy Wood said on, on this network yesterday, who was asked directly, you know, why they were trimming NVIDIA, uh, of all names, and here's what she said. We like NVIDIA. We think it's going to be a good stock. Uh, it's priced. It's, pr it's the check-the-box AI company, uh, and rightly so. We own it in other of our funds, but for our flagship fund, where we, we've consolidated towards our highest conviction names, part of that has to do with valuation. NVIDIA's valuation is very high. Now, 
when Kathy Wood <laughs> takes issue with valuation yeah. in a stock that she has and she starts trimming it as a result of that, yeah. you stand up and you take notice, don't you? Yeah, that's that's like Colonel Sanders telling you the chicken is too crispy. It's uh, it's you know, it's interesting. No, in in fairness though, Kathy has a portfolio, and she has to make decisions not just on an absolute basis. Do I like the stock or not? But are there better values? Because you can only allocate 100% of the pie. So I don't know what her thinking is if she's looking at Nvidia and saying it's too pricey relative to other opportunities that I like better. I, I'm not in her head, so I can't fully understand the situation, but. Uh, to her point, it's an expensive stock. The problem is it has never been cheap. So we've seen the stock since we've been talking about it on the show in 2015. We've seen the stock go up thousands of percentage points. It wasn't cheap the entire time. Um, one thing I would point out, though, right now it's particularly expensive. If you look at this stock on a price earnings uh, trailing 12 months, price to sales, price to free cash flow basis, it's currently more expensive than its three, five, and 10-year median for all three of those metrics. Mm -hmm. And that's why I said before they reported earnings, if I didn't already own it, I would not be buying it. Of course, it went up 20 points right in my face after <laughs> saying that, but I still feel that way even more so where it trades now. Wait for market turmoil, wait for the next downgrade from an analyst before you try to buy the stock, because right at this moment, it is not um, a mouthwatering steal uh, of, uh, of a purchase. Do, do we feel like, look, technology, as I said, is up 10% since the start of the year. Com services is up nine. If you use NVIDIA, Steph, as an example of where some of these technology stocks have gone, um, is, is that the area of the three winners so far this year that may be most at risk, tech? Because you've had a lot of speculative names go up. You've had a lot of higher valuation names go up. You've had a lot of highly shorted names go up. And then, you know, the mega caps of the world have done okay, but not nearly the likes of those. Yeah, the non-earners, right? They've gone up so much so far this year. Look, I mean, I, I think that they are technology in general, there are pockets that you can be invested in, right? I mean, I, I like the semiconductors, for example, because I think the valuations are very reasonable. Within this AI story, I, I, sure, I'll take it for Meta, right? But I don't, I don't own Meta for AI. I own it for them fixing reels and click-to-message and the cost-cutting program and the fact that it trades at 15 times forward estimates. Yeah. Even though it's had a nice run, um, I certainly wouldn't chase it up here, but I do feel comfortable owning it. So I think there are pockets in technology that you can certainly own. But yeah, I think a lot of them are very vulnerable, especially the non-earners. What about the earners? I mean, there, there is the NVIDIA of the world, too, which... I thought you got a real honest, real in the moment perspective from, from Josh, who, yeah. who loves the and, stock. An, incre looks, an incredible and, perspective, someone said. Looks straight, <laughs> into, <laughs> looks straight into the camera long. and said, look, if I didn't own it, I wouldn't buy it. You know, so, not so, every stock's wait, wait, a buy or sell, right? Like there are stocks that are a hold. Right. And this, this, is, me, it's this all. is what we all do is we pick stocks. Right. You know, you may be saying, all right, it's not attractively priced right now. And I might look on the other side of the coin of this AI issue. Should Google Alphabet have lost $250 billion in market cap over the last no. month? No. Exactly. I'm going to say no. Now, to the, to the point of whether AI is a bubble or not, I would say it hasn't really inflated Microsoft's price that much, but it has given you an opportunity in Alphabet. And as a stock I picker, I look at that and so, say, okay, let's, let's dive in there. Now, you guys have also opened the door to a, a great conversation, I think, Carrie, which there's a, a good note out today from Bank of America and their flow trends. Another week of outflows, but inflows into single stocks. Clients sold ETFs but bought single stocks for the first time in three weeks. I feel like 
since we're talking about direct stock picking, mm-hmm. whether this is going to be the year for active stock picking rather than passive ETF investing. Yeah, sure. Well, if we're in a trading range, and I think that's true as well, and my range may be different than Steph's, but if it's 3,800 to 4,200, and what you're seeing are stocks that move up and down. I mean, as, as a matter of fact, uh, Alphabet is a perfect example of a stock that we thought got oversold, and it was trading for 18 times forward earnings, and that was 30% less than uh, many of the consumer staple stocks, half actually, uh, some of the consumer staple stocks that are growing at a much lower rate. Uh, and then you get Google might move up and you get United Healthcare move down. I mean, it's a big component of the S&P and had a great year relative last year, but has really suffered recently. And maybe that's a stock to buy now because it's now oversold. So we think there are opportunities on the stock-specific case to, to be made, and we can go in and out. It, the problem becomes, if you don't want to trade a lot, if you want to be long-term investors, mm-hmm. it's harder to take advantage of these moves, but you can on the margin, definitely. All right. So let's uh, take a quick break and stay with us, please. Goldman Sachs Investor Day just wrapping up a few moments ago. Top banking analyst Mike Mayo, he is there. He is calling in next. He said going in, this might be a sell on the news event. We'll find out what he thinks next. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. We're back. Goldman Sachs' second ever Investor Day. Just wrapping up a few moments ago, CEO David Solomon addressing concerns about the future of the bank. Top banking analyst Mike Mayo is there, joins us now on the phone. Uh, welcome. You said going in this might be a sell on the news event. What's your take now that you heard Mr. Solomon and co? Well, there's no change what we said before. I mean, these typically are sell the news events. Um, look, I love the financial targets and their path to get there. I love the intelligence. But, you know, it's going to take actions over words. So, you know, over the next year, uh, they're on a nice path, um, but it varies. Um, so if I were to give grades, Scott, I'd give a grade of A to their 150-year-old legacy business of capital markets. They're killing it. That's 70% of the company, and frankly, they're probably greatest of all time in, in deal-making. I'd give a grade of B to their asset management business. Embedded in that is a mini Blackstone trying to come out. But I'd also give a grade of E or fail to the consumer business. They talk about breaking even in their third business line by 2025. You know, that would be nine years after 
we first launched the consumer expansion, and that didn't sit well with many in the room, doesn't sit well with me. Um, they did talk about maybe selling off some of these consumer loans. You know, this, this third business line is a 1.5% drag on their returns, and it just kind of seeps the air out of investors. So if, if mm-hmm. there's a selling the news reason, it's, it's consumer, it's consumer, it's consumer. And my analogy here, it's like Michael Jordan, you know, one of the greatest basketball players of all time. Do you remember when he, he went go play baseball <laughs> a little bit? And he didn't stick to what he did on a core basis, you know, stick to your day job. He gave that up, went back to basketball. Likewise, Goldman Sachs is, you know, one of the greatest capital market players for the last 154 years. And just go back to your day job and do what you do best. And I think that's been the consensus among investors. And if there's a reason for the stock down today, it's because of the lack of resolution for the consumer okay. business, which is really just 3 to 5% of the company, but takes up so much more mind share. Uh, and, and hurts the stock. I want to read you uh, something that the FT, their editorial board, wrote today, and I'd like your opinion of it. Quote, the bank whose dominance was once so assured it gained notoriety as the quote-unquote vampire squid is now more of a damp squid. A nosedive in profits in the last quarter of 22, punishing job cuts, denting morale, and a botched strategic overhaul have left Goldman trailing its arch rival, Morgan Stanley. Now, they went on, but what's your reaction to what they write? Well, the deaths of Goldman Sachs have been greatly exaggerated time in and time out. Um, in fact, their turnover of the partners is the lowest it's been in five years. And so when you look at the metrics, at least, that they gave to us, uh, Goldman is uh, as strong as ever, you know, culturally. And you look at the numbers, look at capital markets, 70% of the company, they gained share by 300 basis points, three percentage points the last few years. Their deal-making is still, you know, top for the last 20 years. So um, I think that's overstated. Having said that, uh, they did have a terrible fourth quarter. They are likely to miss their targets this year and next. I personally asked a lot of questions around that. But, you know, uh, just like in sports, as in uh, Wall Street, Winning cures all. So if they can get to their targets, uh, then all this other stuff will just be noise in the background. Yeah, but, but if, if, if but they you don't, just said, but, but I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you just said that they're, they're probably going to miss their targets this year and next. So are, are you well, telling me to buy this? Are you telling me to buy the stock today at the same time you're telling me that they're going to miss their targets this year and next? Uh, yes, because right now the stock price is assuming returns even below our estimate. So even with these subpar returns, below target returns, uh, the stock price is pricing in something much worse. So even though they might not get there for a few years, uh, you know, especially relative to Morgan Stanley, uh, you have an enormous margin of safety. It wouldn't take much uh, to see that gap narrowed, uh, but it's just not going to happen uh, in the short term. It's more back-end loaded, uh, and they will have to have actions over words. So um, and, look, they gave a nice glide path. I mean, getting from their 10 to 11% return to 15%, you know, you know, one and a half percentage point simply by breaking even on their third business line with all their new expansion activities. That's, that's under their control. And what we'd like to see is for management to accelerate the resolution of that. So if you get one and a half percent pop to your returns, that could certainly make a difference it's just a matter of when are we going to see something like that, and that's uncertain. It's going to happen at some point, and they're selling off consumer loans per what they said today, but it's just going to take time. So, yeah, this has been a, a sell the 
news event. Um, but over the next year, I come back a year from now, and you say, hey, okay, they're getting a little bit more credit for the returns that they're, they're generating, even if they're below their own target. And Solomon, his, his job's not in, in jeopardy, is it? I don't think so. But, you know, just like anyone else at Goldman Sachs, you have to earn your job every day. So if, if we come back in the next year or two and they're behind on their targets and morale's not good and there's turnover, but there's not that turnover today. But if you don't get your targets for too long, then you're under the microscope a lot more. On the other hand, if, if they can get toward their targets, eliminate some of those losses they have in consumer, um, then, you know, winning would cure all. Yeah. Hey, Mike, I appreciate it. I know you're busy, and I do appreciate you coming to the phone and talking to little Goldman after uh, their second ever Investor Day, um, which is astounding, really, the 150-year history. Sure. It's their second Investor okay. Day. Uh, Jim, you, I appreciate it. Uh, you own the stock. What, what's your take on what Mayo said? Well, first off, I heard him say that this is a sell-the-news event. In my experience, usually analyst days are not a sell-the-news event. Usually the analyst community wants to get behind this. The investment community wants to get behind this. The fact that the stock's down, to me, is a referendum on the plan and the leadership. Um, now, I'm not saying, let's just be clear, I'm not calling for Mr. Solomon's head, not doing anything like that. But we do have to acknowledge, you asked the question, because it is a topic of conversation. And I think Mike answered the question very well. He needs to put some wins on the board. Fourth quarter was dreadful. And look, this is a people business, and it's a partner-driven business at Goldman Sachs, despite the fact that it's a public entity. What I mean to say is they are aware of how well Morgan Stanley's share price has done this year compared to theirs. It does not make people happy. Let's put some they numbers to- on that. Morgan Stanley, up uh, since the, since David Solomon became CEO of Goldman Sachs, yep. Morgan Stanley up 96% total return. Goldman Sachs up 50. 50 is not terrible, but 50 is not 100. I, and but it's believe me, the partner, exactly. I'm sorry, I'm stealing the words from your mouth. The partners at Goldman Sachs are well aware and not happy about it. Now, look, let's be clear. The reputation is not damaged beyond repair. This should be a moment in time. People still want to go to work at, at Goldman Sachs because they think they can make money, because they think it's the creme de la creme. Certainly Morgan Stanley is up there, right there with them. The, the reputation is not damaged, but they can't keep going Morgan on. Morgan Stanley made changes. They bought things. Goldman Sachs, Goldman Sachs did not, right? And so as a result, Morgan Stanley is more diversified. They did a lot of, you're right, they did a lot of M&A. So you do get capital markets, and if you believe capital markets is troughing, which I actually do, you can own Goldman Sachs, it's certainly cheap enough, but you also get that with Morgan Stanley. In addition, you get wealth management, which also is probably in the troughing area as well. Goldman would tell and you their though, returns that are far superior than Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs expects to get to 15% ROTC Morgan Stanley's goal is 20. Morgan Stanley's already at 15%. Goldman so has they an are albatross. just a much better... They're going to be a bigger player in wealth management a year from now than they are well, today. Well, they're no, not going to they be should, anywhere close to Morgan Stanley. They, so, right. what, I don't see how they could. What Goldman right. should do is just go back to what worked for them, which is catering to the elite, whether it's consumer or corporations. You're right, Steph. Morgan Stanley has won that you know broader game. But the consumer business was never a good idea. They didn't execute on it well, and they need to just... But I mean, they are leaning into asset management. And they're very, yeah. So is everyone, though. They're very clear and direct about the growth engine yeah. that it will be. It, yeah, it was forward. its first priority. We said it twice. Seventy percent of their business is capital. Every, but so, wealth management is the crown jewel of every firm on Wall Street right now. Yeah. May not always be, but yeah. this is what they're all saying they want to do. Uh, Goldman bought one of the biggest RIAs in the country for about four years ago. 
Um, I don't know that the stock price has benefited from that. That's a small. Josh, it's you, small as a percentage of under, total revenue. Understood. And now they say they want to be big in the custody business. If yeah. you do, go buy Bank of New York Mellon for Pershing. Why do you own JPM? You'll be the third yeah. biggest player in the Why do you own JPM as your as your bank of choice? I think it's the best run bank in the world. I mean, I know it is. A, a conversation so. we always have. I mean, we always say that. If you're going to be in the space and we want to be in the space, you want to own what's arguably the best name in the It's also business. the most expensive, though. For a reason. But, but, but not should terribly it expensive. It, I mean, should, it gonna... should be more expensive than J- Citigroup. JP Morgan. Oh, my God. Anything J- should be more expensive <laughs> than Citigroup. <laughs> J- JP Morgan's up 24.5% over the last six months. Uh, that's doubled the second closest, and that's Morgan Stanley. 24 and a half over the last six months. Mm. Carrie, no banks? Why? No, we, we own banks. We just don't own any of the big money center banks. And I think that what you've been playing with banks, the big banks, are interest rate swings or the direction and people making predictions about where they're going. And that's not anything that, you know, we felt comfortable making those bets. I mean, we're, we're market players, but we own first, we bought First Republic recently. We own Schwab. We own Blackstone. Um, you know, there are ways to play financial services in ways beyond okay. just the big ones. It's like Gilderado always says. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> Up next, we got the trade on no. Disney. It's been 100 days since Bob Iger returned to CEO. We do have two shareholders on the desk today. We'll get their grades on the first 100 when we come back. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. The head of engineering at FTX, before it collapsed, has pleaded guilty to federal criminal fraud and campaign finance charges. This is a part of an agreement to cooperate with prosecutors. The judge accepted Nishad Singh's plea about half an hour ago during a court hearing. And this puts even more pressure on founder Sam Bankman-Fried, who has pleaded not guilty to the charges against him. Two other close associates are also working with prosecutors. Ron DeSantis is not a presidential candidate, but he may be traveling like someone who wants to win the White House. NBC News reports the Republican Florida governor is considering stops in key early primary states over the next few weeks, including Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and possibly South Carolina. But sources tell NBC any presidential announcement will not come before June. And there's a different kind of race underway on the other side of the world. Five boats participating in the third leg of the ocean race are hitting rough seas around the Cape of Good Hope as they start a nearly 13,000 nautical mile journey from Cape Town to Brazil via Australia. Scott. Okay. Thank you, Christina Partsinevelis. Now to our chart of the day. Disney shares up nearly 10% since Bob Iger retook the CEO position 100 days ago. Our Julia Borson joins us now from L.A. with more on those first 100. Julia? 
Well, Scott, Disney has outperformed the market, but underperformed most of its rivals as Iger has acted quickly in the past 100 days to undo the work of his predecessor and chart a new path. Iger restructured the company to unite the creative divisions and separate out ESPN, putting decision-making back in the hands of creative executives. He also announced layoffs and cost-cutting, targeting $5.5 billion in savings, ending his proxy battle with Nelson Peltz. Now Iger faces some big questions. What will he do with Hulu? Will he buy out the stake owned by CNBC's parent company Comcast or sell Disney's stake? How will he manage ESPN's future and Disney's commitment to general entertainment? And who will be his successor? All of this as Iger faces external challenges, a potential ad recession and pullback in consumer spending, which could, of course, hurt streaming subscriptions as well as the parks division. Scott? Okay, Julia, thank you very much. Uh, all right, Jim Labenthal, you first on Disney. What do you think? First 100 and what lies ahead? Well, look, the share price and I agree that he's done a good job so far. I think there's obviously more to do. And as uh, Julia was just going through that piece, I thought to myself, you know, why do we have to have the discussion about Hulu and ESPN? It's part of the Disney, obviously, the, uh, the panoply of their important. businesses. No, but I think we need to simplify this, okay? We need to get the decision made, what we're doing with the Hulu portion that's owned by Comcast. We need to get that downstream of that. And this is where Mr. Iger can and will probably be successful. The other part is ESPN, which on the earnings report he said, you know, it's not up for sale, but but putting it out on its own in terms of the business structure does seem to ask that question of, is it up for sale? And frankly, I think getting rid of it would simplify a structure that's becoming a little bit unwieldy. We haven't even talked about Disney+. Plus. There's a lot going on at the company, and I think simplifying it a little bit at this stage would be a good idea. Steph? The plan is a good one. There still are a lot of questions, as Julia mentioned. We all have a lot of the questions, but now it's execution, right? I mean, can they fix the park's profitability? They did last quarter. Can they do it consistently? DTC profitability. Can they get there? And in what time frame can they get there? You, and have, then, you have confidence that they will? And then, yes, I do. I just The timing is going to be challenging, right? Because the whole space is under enormous challenges. But I think what's going to be also interesting is they have $5.5 in cost cuts coming. Where is that going to be and what, is it, what does it look like and what does the company look like after that? So I think there are a lot of questions, but I'm going to stick around for the ride. He's got a great track record. Nobody talks about succession and maybe you could make the argument that that's the most important thing that he needs to figure out. We got two years. Two years goes by in a flash and we saw what happened last Disney time. Disney has a content problem. The movies are objectively bad and they are failing at the box office. Well, that's the a streaming, problem. And the streaming shows are even worse. Well, that's what he's going to fix. He's going to well, fix the content. I was going to say, this whole thing about we're going to put creators front and center, how do you do that while simultaneously slashing budget? You're going to cut costs everywhere but content. I saw Ant-Man this weekend. I, oh. definitely want, I definitely want all the money back. <laughs> I saw the last <laughs> Thor. But, but, I sat through two episodes of She-Hulk. Part of me feels like I'm being... You have time on your hands, I have kids, but like, I feel like I'm being pranked. You're right. I mean, <laughs> these movies are terrible. Objectively how, terrible. How, how much did Avatar 2 bring in? And yes, I went and saw it. I want my money back. Somehow these things are making money. I will grant you the Marvel Universe is tired at this point in time. I agree. But somehow they are monetizing this content. I don't know how Avatar well, did so well. All right, coming up. Up. The war on buybacks heating up again today and some eye-popping new numbers. We're following that money when we come back on the half. Welcome back to the Halftime Report 2023, shaping up to be another record year for stock buybacks with some estimates calling for the total to reach a trillion dollars. Our Bob Pisani following that money for us. Bob, a trillion and counting. That's the holy wow. grail. 
That would be it. So Warren Buffett, remember yesterday they called people opposed to buybacks financial illiterates? There may be opposition to buybacks, but as long as cash flows remain strong, Wall Street's continuing its love affair with dividends and buybacks. Chevron and Accidental Petroleum last night announced increases in its dividend and buybacks. Chevron also going ahead with a big five-year buyback plan. Investors seem to love both buybacks and dividends. 2022 was a record year for both of them, both dividends and buybacks. Buybacks, $930 billion, up 5.5% year over year. Dividends, $564 billion. This is the S&P 500 up 6.4%. Now, based on early numbers, it's early, but 2023 may be the holy grail. We may hit $1 trillion in buybacks. Dividends also potentially up 5%. That's according to S&P Global. That 1% tax on buybacks, well, it seems to be having very little effect on the announcements. It's really all about the cash flow. And as long as that holds up, Scott, the buybacks are going to keep coming. Oh, you you can bet they will. Bob, thank you very okay. much. Uh, that's Bob Pisani. Uh, I've been dying for you guys' take. I got Jim's yesterday, but what's your take on this? Especially what Buffett said. Yeah. Right. I know you. You know you're a student of of what his writings have been, and and on and on and on. Besides being an investor in, in Berkshire Hathaway itself. Yeah, Berkshire Hathaway does not itself do a ton of buyback activity. They've done some. They, they have kind of put a little bit of a, a, a governor on at what price they'll buy it. I think it was 1.3 times tangible book or something. That may have changed. But they own a lot of companies that do huge buybacks like Apple. And what that functionally does is it raises Berkshire's share of Apple's earnings proportionately mm-hmm. because the overall float is shrinking. Mm-hmm. Um, this is why he's defending the buybacks. Uh, the economic illiterate part, I think, is interesting. There is a case to be made that not all buybacks are created equal. And if you're doing a buyback to sterilize employee stock option issuance, A, it doesn't benefit the existing shareholders, and B, that's probably not the right type of buyback. But truthfully, even with a 1% tax on buybacks, it's still a more capital efficient way to give investors back uh, some of the gains versus a dividend. A dividend, you're being charged a dividend tax rate on a buyback, the the individual is. So it's actually double taxation. The company does revenue, then they have profit, they get taxed on that profit, then they pay it in the form of the dividend, and the shareholder pays taxes on the profit again. Who would opt for that versus, hey, we're gonna return the same amount of capital, but we're gonna do it in the form of a buyback, shrinking the the share count, and you will benefit as a result. So I I don't think it's, are buybacks good or bad? I think there are good buybacks and bad buybacks. I think a lot of the way politicians talk about it, they live in this fantasy land where companies are saying, hmm, should we hire people or should we just do a buyback? That is not actually how any Fortune 500 company works. Most companies that are doing buybacks have huge CapEx, have huge um, uh, R&D. Apple is a great example. It's a company that does it all. Dividend, buyback, R&D, CapEx, growing all of those metrics each year. And I think if politicians actually wanted to learn a little bit more, they would have some nuance behind what they're saying. But that's not the gig that they're in. The gig that they're in is sound bites and, and pop populism. And so that's why we're in the situation that we're in. I, I knew you would have uh, a great take, and I was waiting to get that. So, I've been holding it for three days. So I'm, glad, I'm glad you're here to, to give your take. I'd love your take too. You know, as somebody who yeah. used to used to run a, a big mutual fund, yeah. I'm wondering how you view this topic, how you thought about buybacks then, and how you think about it now. Well, 
It's a good question. And, and Josh, I mean, Professor Brown just gave us a very good sense of the dividend versus buyback and tax proposition. But if you think about what companies do with their excess cash flow, and technology companies in particular have very high profit margins and have for the last decade invested much of their free cash flow into projects that it, it's turned out, many of which have not worked out well, but it didn't bother their profitability because they could go grow right through it. Now, we've seen over the last few years, and particularly, you know, post-pandemic, they have invested in these opportunities, which didn't materialize. And given that they still have free cash flow from their base business, we think it's better that they buy back the shares than pay dividends because their investors are not really paying for them to pay 3% dividends. You know, that's for companies where the growth is limited. You know, I mean, not limited, but you, you really have to think about what kind of business. And for the growth companies that we own, CRM, PayPal, Apple, Google, they're all doing big buybacks, and we're very much in favor of it. All right. Up next, Mike Santoli joins us with his midday word on this final trading day of the month of February. We'll do it next. Senior Markets Commentator Mike Santoli here with uh, his midday word now. All right, month end, new month about to begin. What are your thoughts? Uh, it feels like, at least for today, the uh, don't short a dull market rule might be uh, in effect. I think that, you know, February uh, kind of moderated some of the excesses of January. You're up 4% or thereabouts in the S&P on a year-to-day basis. Uh, that only feels like a letdown because of how exuberant the first four or five weeks of the year were. So I think everything's sort of okay. And in terms of the widely talked about supposed disagreement between what the Treasury market is saying and the stock market seems to be saying. Uh, the credit market's a bit of a bridge between those things. And, you know, both in, in February, year to date, on a six-month basis, the high yield is outperforming investment grade. So spreads are okay. You could tell me that corporate credit investors are also uh, kind of whistling past the graveyard. and They're not paying attention to the risk. Maybe that's true. Uh, and maybe the spread uh, set up right now doesn't seem attractive for owners. But to me, it shows you there's not a ton of stress in the system, at least at the moment. All right. I'll see you on closing bell. Look forward to that in our conversation then. Mike Santoli, final trades are next. Are you following the Halftime Report podcast? What are you waiting for? Look for us in your favorite podcasting app. Follow the Halftime Podcast now. All right, a couple of important things to tell you about. We are really excited about David Einhorn joining us exclusively tomorrow on Halftime Report. Doesn't do a lot of TV, uh, but he is tomorrow, and we're super excited about that. And today, by the way, 3 o'clock Eastern on Closing Bell, I've got Liz Young joining us, Shannon Sakosha, Matthew Boss, number one ranked retail analyst, and, and Eric Woodring as well, Morgan Stanley's Apple analyst. Doesn't do much TV either. Took over for Katie Huberty, has some new stuff to say about Apple, and we're excited about that as well. I hope you'll join me. Carrie. Final trade, you first. In mode, it's a medical device company focusing on aesthetics. Sells for 13 times next year's earnings, has 500 million in cash and 200 million free cash flow. It's really an attractive stock price. All right, good stuff. Farmer Jim. Wind Resorts, it has consolidated the last few weeks, ready to take another leg higher. All right, Steph. Target, so I bought some this morning. I'm going to be continuing to buy. Good quarter, and I think it's de risked. All right, Josh Brown. JP Morgan, my favorite pick in the financial sector. All right, I will see you uh, 3 o'clock Eastern time, closing bell. Uh, the exchange begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. 
can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.